Ali Double. Grab your pants. Good morning, good morning. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast. You're here with Judith and Patty. Nick, I'm sure, is on the way. And uh, it's a beautiful morning out there. Lucky Nick just driving in that lovely, lovely dawn. Yeah. I know, with those beautiful balloons going on. Yes, and uh, last night I, I heard my first cicada. Did you? That's always a big moment for me, <laughs> so that was great. That summer hum. You yeah. have a good Canadian accent when you say cicada. Oh, I always I? say cicada, but cicadas it, Well, I say cicada because I thought it was the way Australians say it, because in Canada we do say cicada, actually, oh, maybe in North America. <laughs> I don't know. All these things, they're so complicated. Aren't they just? Yeah. Um, I think we're heading for another top of 33 this oh, really? fine Wednesday. Wonderful. I know, it's kicking along, kicking into summer in a beautiful way. Yeah, for sure. So, um, yeah, coming up on the show, lots happening. We have lots happening. I think we have an interview with someone towards the end about fake news and maybe my generation not being able to decipher whether it's fake or not. Yes, so I understand. I'm I'm kind of looking forward to hearing about that too, so I can do it better. (laughs) (laughs) And um, we've also got... um, um, Maria Tanyag coming on from the Monash Faculty of Arts and uh, she's done her research in the Philippines her PhD research in the Philippines with women there in, um, in um, like post-disaster, post-conflict areas so I think uh, her take on that is going to be really interesting, her experiences but also she's applying political, political economy theory which I think allows her to see the big picture on the things that are affecting these women. So I'm really looking forward to talking to Maria later. That'll be super interesting. And just yesterday I had a chat with um, Dr. Jose Ramos um, talking about, well, there's an article that I tried to get aired not long ago, but it's timeless as we're constantly progressing with technology. Oh, yes. He's reframing how a lot of his work is done in foresight and globalisation, sort of looking at... The global village in many different ways and many different factors that come into that and trying to dissect the binary between good and bad technology and move past that and forward from that. That, that sounds incredibly important and incredibly complicated, it, Patty. It does. I was swimming for a bit, so I hope, <laughs> yes. um, we can, I hope we can give you something through this interview that comes yeah, up later on. I'm and looking his, forward to yeah, that. Yeah, his article is... I am not tech, as human. I am not technology. I am technology. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Oh, there. Great title. Great title. It is a good title. And then we've also got um, Lindsay coming in to talk about CCP um, Center for Contemporary Photography coming in. Yes, I was so excited to see that. I love photography. Yeah. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see what um, she has to say. Applicants have been able to um, submit their work from all over um, different qualities, different lenses. It'll be lovely to see what Lindsay has to say about that. Yes, and we're also going to hear about the Winter Film Festival coming up in Sydney, I think, tomorrow. It starts tomorrow, so that's that's really exciting too. That is very exciting. A special presenter from Hope, I believe. Yes, from Tuesday Breakfast. I know. Isn't that special? So that'll be super lovely. But before we get there, hopefully these deep forest sounds from Omeo's song will get you there.
So that was a beautiful piece of music, Patty. Just great. It was a beautiful piece of music. Omeo's Deep Forest. You can check that out on their SoundCloud. That's where we got it from this beautiful morning. I hope that helps people wake up on their drive, on yeah, their ride. It's a bit of a gentle wake up this it morning. Is. Yeah. So um, tomorrow, the Winter Film Festival, which is celebrating Indigenous films under the Milky Way, which is a lovely subtitle, um, opens in Sydney at Event Cinema George Street. And uh, Hope from Tuesday Breakfast um, has the story. With us on 3CR Breakfast, I have Medika Thorpe. Medika is a Gunai and Gurang Gurang woman from Melbourne, Victoria, as well as the Executive Director of Winda Film Festival. Hi, Medika. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Great. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, on the show. Can you please tell us a little bit about Winda Film Festival and uh, how it all came about? Yeah, look, Winter Film Festival, we're actually in our second year. We started last year with really um, an idea and and we've kind of seen a need within the industry here in, in Sydney, let alone um, around, you know, the nation. Um, and so Pauline Clegg and I, Pauline Clegg, I've been a filmmaker for over 20 years, and um, her and I were actually over at um, the Imaginative Film Festival based in Toronto, and we had a conversation there. I was actually working and living in Canada, working on this festival. And so we just, you know, she knew that I was eventually going to come back to, to um, Australia. And she pretty much, you know, said, look, let's, um, if you're interested, let's start a film festival. And, and I kind of knew suddenly when she asked me that, that was a, we did need a need we needed that type of um, platform for our filmmakers back home. Um, you know, the festival that I was working on in Canada was, you know, is, is the largest Indigenous film festival in in the world, um, but we didn't have anything like that in Australia. No representative kind of um, festival to, you know, focus on our Indigenous filmmakers. So we came up with the um, idea of bringing something home, and um, yeah, within. Four months we had something running and we, we did it last year in November and we started it there and then we've, we've been able to come back this year and, and have our second festival. Yeah. And in terms of uh, the concept of, of, of the festival and, and bringing it here, I see that Winda means stars um, from yeah. a language from the north coast of New South Wales and uh, your, your logo is also the star trail of the Milky Way. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, look, it's such a beautiful um, meaning to to the festival. Um, Winda being a Jaeger word, which is where um, Pauline's from, from the north coast of New South Wales. Um, and, you know, it means stars, it means Milky Way. So we just we just saw the essence of what the word meant to us as um, the, as a culture and how we're so related to the sky and and the constellations in the in you know um, and how that relates to us you know on ground and and, um, and to our culture so you know and one thing I always believe is you know all and because we're an international um, festival we're an indigenous international festival you know there's one thing that we all have in common in, is the sky mm. so we all look up and we and we share and we've all got stories and we look at the sky for guidance um, through our ancestors you know through stories that we all you know get from 
from the sky. So it's something that that we can all kind of relate to. But each part of the world, we all have um, our own constellations. Like we've got the Southern Cross and how that's important to us. And so, you know, and our stories come from out of that. So it was just something that was really beautiful. And, you know, and I think, you know, the star trails, you know, it also looks like looking through um, our logo is the star trail, but it also looks like you're looking through a lens, a camera lens with mm. all the different colours and all that kind of stuff. So it just, it just had really great meaning and it's something that just stuck with us. So, yeah, it's really great. Yeah, as you've mentioned, you're an international uh, festival. Um, in terms of some of the things that people can look forward to as part of the festival, in terms of um, contributions from Indigenous communities outside of um, um, Australia, what can people look forward to? Yeah, look, we've got a great range um, of films from all over the world, especially from Aotearoa, New Zealand. Um, you know, they've, they've always got some really amazing films coming out of um, out of there, and and we, you know, we uh, we've got a really great program with um, young people making films that they've um, um, partnered with the Multiland Film Festival, so which is called Brave New Lens, and it's about five. There's five films in that program made by young people, um, ranging from you know early teens up. So it's really great to see some really you know folk we're folk you know focus on the young people um, and what they're doing in their communities. Um, we've got some films from um, great feature documentaries from uh, Canada and Turtle Island, so USA and Canada, and um, and you know, some really great stuff coming out of there. You know, they're really um, the leading um, filmmakers, you know, within the industry, in indig- Indigenous filmmaking industry. So it's, it's just great to have a piece of, um, you know, of different films from around the world at our festival. Um, and, you know, we've got films from... Uh, one film from Norway. Uh, we've got obviously got films from here in Australia. So it's really great to, to see you know, just the collection we're able to bring together um, and just know that there's so many films out there that need to be seen. Mm. Um, and definitely, yes, there's a, there's a lot of amazing um, uh, uh, contributions and, and films uh, from from here in Australia as well. In fact, your opening night film uh, is from uh, Warwick Thornton. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, look, um, we're opening up with Warwick Thornton's latest film, uh, Sweet Country, which has um, not been released um, to mainstream until January next year. So we're quite lucky to have um, its screening here in Sydney. Um, and we've got a sold-out um, opening night, which is incredible, and we're really excited for for the night. But this, this film is such a beautiful cinematic experience, um, and it's really something different. Um, that we've seen before from Warwick, um, and he's just incredible. He's just making some really beautiful stuff. Um, but yeah, it's just really, it's a Western, mm. and so you know, it's about you know um, this this Aboriginal man being um, tried for killing a white man, but in self defence. So it's just beautifully, you just follow this beautiful um, story, and it actually has no soundtrack. It's you know, the soundtrack is the earth is the wind, is the, you know, the um, dust blowing and all that kind of stuff. But kind of just really, you kind of create your own, um, 
you know, kind of experience within the film. So it's quite incredible, and I can't wait for everyone to see it. And um, yet, you know, like it's it's just incredible that we'll be able to open it up with um, Sweet Country. Yeah, that's wonderful. And as you say, it, it is sold out as happens. But I guess, um, uh, you know, f- for our listeners, they can look forward to uh, catching it in January. But what are some yeah. films that people should try and see that they may not be able to to access uh, quite so easily in terms of uh, screenings in the future? What would uh, you uh, maybe recommend people think of seeing? Well, um, there's another great film called Waru, which is um, a film made by eight Māori female directors, which is just incredible. It just um, did really well over at um, the Hawaiian International Film Festival. Um, and so it's eight Māori women from um, Aotearoa, which is New Zealand. And they kind of all come together with their own stories and it kind of creates one big story. And this film is actually touring around Australia at the moment, so you'll be able to look them up on Facebook and they've got a listing of where those screenings will be um, around the country, So, which is really great. And we're just very lucky to have that film also a part of the program. Um, and there's, you know, there's another award-winning um, pro, uh, sorry, film that we have is called Out of State, which is from Hawaii. Um, which just won an, a Hawaiian International Film Festival award as well, um, which is you know quite a quite a beautiful um, kind of uh, a film about um, native Hawaiians within the jail system, but they're um, learning about culture and how important it is to them, and, and then also them coming out of into um, you know outside and kind of adjusting to the society and all that kind of stuff. So. It's, it's quite nice the way it's played out and, and, it, and they've done a really good, great job. And I think that that's also playing around the country soon as well. So, yeah, we're just really excited to be showing these films. And, you know, and if people do miss out, um, that they'll be out, you know, for the next couple of months um, showing around the country as well. But we really hope that people can come along to our festival and see the films there. Um, so a lot of these films probably won't be able to be seen again unless you contact you know them directly um and you you know um they might have you know their own websites and and facebook links to to the um to the films and trying to get their films to different cinemas and that's the thing right it's good to always you know if if you want to see a film just get your cinema to to get it in there as well i think you know the if people haven't if the cinema hasn't heard of it, it's good for, you know, people to go and tell them, can you get this film? So, you know, I think they would try and do that. Um, yeah, that's exactly right. And so for our listeners, um, the festival is happening in Sydney from yes. the 23rd to the 26th of November. So this is this Thursday. And so I guess all of Melbourne will have to fly up and catch it um, or share, yep. you, you know, I guess our listeners can share these details with loved ones in Sydney. Where can they go yeah, to find out exactly. more information? Yeah, so we have a website, winderfilmfest.com, and it has all our full program. It has all the details about where to buy tickets 
and it has um, you know some links to different things. So it's you know everything's on the website. We also have a Facebook page, um, Winter Film Festival. So yeah, look, it's going to be held from the 23rd to the 26th of November at the Event Cinema George Street. Um, yeah, so if anyone knows anyone in Sydney to you know let them know to come along to the festival. Um, you know, tickets start from $10. We have some free events as well. We have a VR360 workshop. We have a free masterclass with um, a prolific um, Canadian filmmaker, Alanisa Bomson, who's 85 years old. She's incredible and she's um, presenting her 50th film here at the festival as well. So we've got some really great stuff happening at the festival and we just hope people can come along and please share the details with um as many people as you can. Great. Well, thank you so much for that, um, Medika, and thank you so much for speaking with us on uh, 3CR Breakfast. Uh, all the best with the festival and really look forward to it uh, continuing you. and supporting in the future. Excellent. Thank you so much. Great speaking with you. You too. And if you're just tuning into 3CR Breakfast, we had Medika Thorpe. Medika is a Gunai and Gorengoreng woman from Melbourne, Victoria, as well as the executive director of Winter Film Festival. You are invited to Sampari Exhibition, celebrating West Papuan culture. Sampari a series of events supporting the West Papuan people's goal for self-determination. Art, discussion, spoken word performance, debate and Melanesian food and culture. Friday, 8th December at 6pm till Sunday, 17th December. ACU Gallery, 26 Brunswick Street, Fitzroy. Go to Sampari Exhibition Facebook or DFAIT. West Papua website. Sampari, brought to you by Federal Republic of West Papua Women's Office, a 3CR supporter.
You're on 3CR Wednesday Breakfast with Judith, Paddy and Lindsay. How are you, Lindsay? I'm well, thank you. Beautiful. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. You're in here because you're the general manager of the CCP Contemporary... Centre for Contemporary Photography, that's the one. Thank you, Lindsay. Yeah. Um, very exciting <laughs> salons coming out and exhibiting opening on Thursday and then that's exhibits right. from Friday on into December. It's very exciting. Could you tell us a little bit about Salon and how that works? Sure. So um, the CCP Salon has been happening for 25 years, which is a really long time. So annually for 25 years. uh, And it's Australia's largest uh, open entry photographic and video exhibition. So open entry means that anyone who applies gets shown. So that's uh, pretty great. Um, We've had about 480 entrants this year, which means about 720 works to hang. Um, And that is in the form of photography, uh, photo books and video. 
Right. Yeah, so yeah. that um, opens tomorrow night and from from six till nine and runs until I think it's the sixteenth of December, Saturday sixteenth of December. And wow. where where is it? So it's at um, four oh four George Street in Fitzroy, which is the Centre for Contemporary Photography. Great. Wow, so the, the selection process, it isn't much of a selection process, it's, no, it's more how to put it all together. Yeah, it's very unlike the rest of our program, which is selected by an exhibition committee. This is the complete opposite. It's a chance for anyone and everybody to exhibit. And there is, I think when it, like the best thing about it is that there's such a variety of different work and people at different stages in their career. So you do get people who've had solo exhibitions at CCP before, quite um, well-known artists exhibiting there, but then you also have students, kids, you have people who it's their first ever exhibition that they've they've been in. So there's a real diversity of the different stages and the styles of photography. So it's a really unique look at what's happening in photography in Australia at the moment. Mm, which, which is super exciting. I can't wait to see how you hang something like it that. It is. It's a pretty crazy yeah. um, to hang because we have yeah. about four days to hang uh, yeah, over 700 works. <laughs> and has this always been going on um, for its 25 years, uh, the salon, or it, is this something new? No, it has been the salon the whole time. So it's yeah. probably, you know, it's it was, you know, it's probably changed, you know, a little bit since then. We've only had photo books for two years. It's the second year we've accepted photo books because they've become really popular. Um, and video, I'm not sure when we started accepting video, but that might be relatively recently as well. Because mm, it's a cool concept, I think, <clears throat> because... The, Images are pretty much now a form of writing or very much an accessible form of communication. So seeing CCP and how the salon's progressed and how it is now and how it is a very open platform for people to express themselves. That's right. Yes, everybody has a camera in their pocket, you know, these days. So it is something that a lot of people do and really, really enjoy. Um, We also find that... Uh, it's a great way for the community to kind of connect with CCP, to, to be involved with CCP. And um, we have a huge amount of people coming through the gallery. I'm sure you can imagine if we've got sort of 480 people that have got work in it. You know, it's a really pop- really popular show as well. A lot of people love coming and seeing it. Mm. Um, and there is, you can imagine, just so much to look at. And you can do repeat visits because some work, some of my favourite works are the ones that are a little quieter and you don't notice them to start with because there's so much work. So it's... Um, yeah, you can definitely come a few times yeah. and still see some new stuff. Yeah, big time. I would imagine each day you'd um, feel something or look or focus on something completely different. Absolutely. You discover something new all the time. But I was wondering, how did you get involved in the Centre of Contemporary Photography? It's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? Yeah, it you call is. it CCP. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've been the gallery manager there for about a year and a half, but I have been working on and off with CCP for about over 10 years as an educator and over about 10 years ago, I also worked uh, as an assistant gallery manager. So I've sort of had a relationship with them on and off. I'm a photographer as well. So I'm a practicing photographic artist um, and have been sort of involved in photography one way or another in my career for, for quite a while. Yeah. Beautiful. What are some of the projects you've been working on of late? Um, so I just actually worked with CCP and SBS to do a uh, – to do. Uh, um, exhibition out at Sunshine in relation in relation with that SBS had a new series come out called Sunshine and so I did an educational program with them um, and personally I just had some work in Not Fair which was a big uh, art fair that just happened last week in Windsor um, which was excellent that was a sort of a two-story building full of about 40 or 50 artists work so yeah there was um, yeah it was incredible yeah it was really great oh beautiful and uh, as you've discussed, you know, photography is a very wide area, given it the is. kind of variety of, of things you're going to be showing. What's your particular area in photography that you work on? 
I work in dark rooms, so I actually have my own dark room. So I'm quite <laughs> traditional, I guess, in that sense. Um, I'm mostly using black and white photography. I shoot, I shoot and develop on my own film and then print my own photographs. Um, so that is primarily my area at the moment. Um, I've always been a film-based photographer and um, have sort of wanted to specialise in that art because it's um, not as common anymore. And I also just really like that sort of meditative, really, really process-based. It's kind of like the opposite to having a camera phone, you know. It's sort of like um, it's very specialised and it's a skill that a lot of people don't have. So I, I, I just I love the process. I was in the dark room all day, sort of from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. yesterday. So it's um, it's yeah, it's quite laborious, but I really enjoy that. So that's my particular area. Um, but yeah, with the, with the salon, I mean, it's there's a huge variety of different types. From there'll be a few silver gelatin prints, so dark room prints, and there'll be inkjet prints and C type prints, and all different kinds of actually techniques. Um, as well as, of course, the subject matter is huge mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, for sure. So it's a good place for people to come down and have a look and see what people are pointing their lenses at and absolutely and how they point them. Obviously, yeah. style is a big thing, and how you process your photos. Definitely. So what's happening at Salon today? So today's a judging, which is oh. very exciting. Oh, there's a few prizes, <laughs> isn't there? There is. There's, I think, 35 categories. Um, so prizes for 35 different categories. Uh, and there's, a, a, there's uh, I can't remember, I think it's about 27 um, industry professionals that are that are providing those prizes. Um, our major sponsors are Leica and Ilford, and that's, that's a, the major prize is a, is a, a Ilford printer and a Leica camera, which is pretty awesome, which wow. is valued at over two wow. grand. Fantastic. Yeah, so there's some definitely some really great um, prizes. Uh, we also have some public programs as far as part of Salon as well. So the one I'm really looking forward to is on Saturday, 2nd of December, and it's called Family Day. So we're just inviting families to come into the gallery. Um, we do find that in Salon often... Um, it's people's first exhibition that they've been in, so they want to bring their family along and celebrate. And so as part of Family Day, we're having a cyanotype workshop, which is basically an alternative uh, printing method um, and a collage station and a photo family, uh, a family photo booth and some other things. So that'll be really, really fun. And we're also having a, um, a judge and, judges and winners speak, which we have, generally have each year, which I think is Friday, December 8th. And also on the Saturday, 16th, the last day of the show, we're having It's a Wrap. So we're encouraging people to come and buy work and we'll wrap it for Christmas and people can take it away. Terrific. Because yeah, the work is quite, a lot of the work is quite affordable too. So it is oh, good great. to get in and have a look. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, thanks so much, Lindsay Cooper, for coming in um, and talking to us Pleasure. this morning. Um, I'm looking forward to getting down and seeing the plethora of work that's been yes. put up there and seeing um, the amazing work by the curators to hang such a work. Um, it's just around the corner, isn't it? It if is. Want to get Very there. close to here. What's the address again? 404 George Street in Fitzroy. Beautiful. And if people want to just have a look online, um, they can go to... Uh, ccp.org.au. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, wonderful to have you here. It sounds so exciting. And I just wanted to say I do love black and white photography, so... Very excited to hear that you're engaging. In it's that. yeah, it's yeah. still it's still going. <laughs> yeah, no, it's fantastic. Fabulous. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and you're tuned into 3CR Breakfast. Nick just joined us in the studio. We'll hear from him in just a second. Green Left Weekly Radio. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy, and equality. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers 
and helps us to better understand the world around us. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movements. Tune in every Friday morning at 8am on 3CR. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Tatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood. So tune in to 3CR Community Radio 8.55 on your AM dial on Thursday afternoon from 3.30 until 4 o'clock. And let's get radical about philosophy. We were just speaking with Lindsay Gosper, is her name. And Uh, before that, uh, you heard the uh, song from uh, Yothi Indy. It was uh, Yothi Indy and uh, Gavin Campbell, uh, the Journey remix of Treaty, and Yothi Indy were playing uh, at Strawberry Fields up on the border of New South Wales and Victoria over the weekend and also played at the Croxton in Thornbury uh, just I think it might have been on Saturday night of the night oh I didn't know no maybe it was Sunday night it was one of the nights it was after Lydia Thorpe uh, was elected uh, in the Northcote (laughs) um, by-election and of course she's an indigenous uh, woman and uh, she got up on stage with Yothi Indian apparently it was very very good for for those that were there Uh, this is 3CR Breakfast hey guys (laughs) welcome just one of those one of those mornings with a terrible um, terrible alarm um, but we've got lots coming up, don't we? We do. We've got it's lots fun. coming up. It's good yeah. to hear your voice, Nick. We've got <laughs> um, Jose about to speak to us, a little conversation I had yesterday. Tuning in, we just started out by asking Jose about his background to give us a bit of context into the conversation that we lead into. So, Jose Ramos, you came across the radar at 3CR Breakfast um, with your latest article, As Human, I Don't Do Technology, I Am Technology, reframing the conversation away from to pro and against technology and the advancements of it. I was hoping before we got into your article that you could just give us a little background of yourself. I understand that you're a director at Action Foresight. What does that involve? You've published a lot of different work um, and have lectured and taught at universities. Uh, yeah, look, so I got into this field called Future, future Studies um, about 17 years ago. I did a master's degree in a thing called strategic foresight. I started in Houston, and then I I migrated over to Melbourne um, because of my wife. Um, I married her here, and now I have children. We have children together. Um, and uh, finished my degree at Swinburne in a thing called strategic foresight. And um, basically, it's uh, about understanding the big challenges that we face collectively. Um, and it's, uh, you know, really understanding what are, the, uh, what are the ways that we can understand the future, what are the different um, views of the future, what are the challenges, and what are the, what are the methodologies and strategies that we can take to, um, to respond effectively to, you know, to future change. Instead of being kind of overwhelmed by change, how can we be empowered in the face of change, and, and you know, so many of us feel totally overwhelmed, you know, by all the things happening in the world, terrorism, automation, et cetera, et cetera, um, that most of us are just reacting, you know, we're in this reactive mode. So, so future studies 
and strategic foresight are really about being empowered in the face of future challenges and, 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 and the issues that we face and, uh, and, and being proactive and, and preventative as well. That's, that's, that's kind of a basic overview. Yeah, beautiful. Um, when I was reading Action Foresight's website and some of your blurbs and things that you've written and then also Action Foresight's put out as Action Foresight, I like the use of playfulness to sort of use um, different strategies of what works in terms of turning an idea into a reality in the future. And one of the things that stuck out was long-term thinking supports wise decision-making, creating better social outcomes for all. Um, and that just gives us a little sense of where you're coming from with your client base. But going back to your article, why do you think it's so important to move away from this binary narrative that has dominated public discussion on the direction and effects that new technologies are having um, at a societal level and at, on a personal level? Well, I mean, there's different, there's different levels of an issue. Um, and at the surface level, what you usually get is the pro and against. So that's kind of the binary. Actually, when you look underneath that, there are many types of globalization. There's globalization of communication, globalization of people through migration. There's the globalization of ecological challenges, you know, that we live on, uh, you know, in a global village. Um, so once you begin going, once you begin deepening the inquiry, um, then that's when, that's when the binary reveals itself as a binary. So in the area of technology, the things that I've noticed have been that people tend to look at technology as a, as a thing that dehumanizes us. So if we were only to go back to a state of quote-unquote nature, then we would be okay. The other part of that binary is that technology is our um, emancipation. The technology, um, and usually that's kind of coupled with ideas around science, um, is, is our savior. You know, it, it, it allows us, it allowed us to you know, dominate the earth, to, you know, to produce more food that we, you know, the food that we need to survive as communities or cultures or civilizations. You know, technology, you know, and the technological fetishism is everywhere. You know, we, all we have to do is turn on the television and technology is adored by advertisements and, um, and just in popular culture in general. And so I guess what I came to in my understanding was that we, we are actually, what we actually do when we do that pro and against thing, that binary, is that we, we take technology outside of us, outside of what it is to be human. And we say that it's, it's a thing out there that is either good or bad, you know, to, to put it in, in really sort of simplistic terms. And instead of that, we can actually think of technology as something which is co-constitutive, co I don't know what the exact term is, co-constituting uh, with humans as, uh, as groups and as cultures. I was wondering, if we are technology, then how does this change the way that we approach tools that we have today that are often designed to capture our attention, alluring us to use them more and more by their design? in this age of attention economy. I was hoping you'd be able to give us a yeah. little insight in how this reframing... Uh... Yeah, sure. Absolutely, yeah. Well, okay. I, I mean, I think, first of all, um, any conversation about technology has to be put in the context of other things. Uh, so, for example, culture. You know, we essentially create 
uh, norms, expectations, uh, sensibilities between each other. You know, so we enculture each other into particular, you know, um, ideas and, and, and feelings and attitudes. And one of those has to do with, you know, the, the, the particular models that we have for relating. So, for example, if we, if we allow technology to simply be kind of carried away uh, through a kind of free market model, then we can expect that technology is going to be used by particular businesses for particular, um, you know, for their particular ends. So I think you actually have to apply some kind of um, some kind of perspective on socialization. You know that you actually have we have a responsibility to to socialize the dimensions of our lives uh, which employ technology and which have profound impact. You know, so for example, in the area of um, of, uh, of of games, you know, games for kids on apps. You know, these things are designed basically to addict young kids. You know, and I have a 10-year-old, and at, at, at certain points in his life, he's just had to play Plants vs. Zombies. He just had to play it, you know, like, um, and so we just said, okay, we've got to take this thing away um, so that his kid, kid can recover, and, uh, and let's find some balance. But it's because, because technology is given up into the social model of the free market, in this particular case, um, that, that, that the actual... Uh, formation of te- that technology is not socialized, and we unleash it upon society in an unsocialized form for the benefit of um, of companies and uh, and private investors who know that they have something to gain from them, uh, a social externality that's involved. So, you know, if we if we accept that we are technology, that isn't that isn't just something outside of us, but that's actually woven into the fabric of, of who we are. To me, that also means that we have to uh, look at how technology is employed by certain perverse interests that may be contrary to social health. And in that regard, then we have to look at, well, what are those frameworks that allow technology to be twisted in this way and to be sort of uh, unleashed upon society um, in harmful ways? And we have to begin to socialize that. So we have to bring technology into the discourses. You know, there's lots of critiques of neoliberalism, but the way that technology and neoliberalism is woven together is really interesting. You know, look at Facebook and look at look at the attention economy around Facebook and and how you know I, I had to get rid of the thing from my phone. You know, um, it just wasn't helping me. <laughs> so that's it. Um, and it, and it I hasn't really been, think yeah, and it hasn't been helping. And I think a lot of the creators who have created these attention grabbers platforms are starting to socialize them within their own house there's been a few articles coming out written by some of the creators who have been in the firms google and facebook and have said that they've put monitors on their monitor um, in the home so that they have a switch off time put away the phone at say seven o'clock and put these implementations on not only themselves but the family to keep that unit sort of a bit of a rhythm going otherwise technology does um, or the use of the technology is always there and omnipresent so what other way how do you socialize technology in that way in a social personal and a political way like it's quite a it has come in quite free and then there's also a drawback by being too controlling of it if it was a state presence come in there what are some of the ways that you would see yeah 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 look i think that's a really complicated question and and i have to admit i don't have you know i don't have like cut dry answers to that um 
I would say that I have a few, you know, I'd offer a few sort of ideas. So um, in terms of socializing technology at the personal, you know, um, political and, and societal levels, there's a couple, couple of ideas I could offer. So one is that we need to apply a precautionary principle at a, at a societal level to technology. If we think that there's a risk with any given technology, then we, we really need to put um, limits around that, those technologies. Essentially, over the 20th century, uh, there's a great German sociologist named Ulrich Beck, and he talked about the, the production of risk through our, um, our industrial innovation-oriented societies, that, that our societies are constantly producing risk, different uh, levels of risk from different technologies, from different innovations. So we essentially need to kind of um, create frameworks around innovation and technology so that there's a precautionary principle with the application of, of different technologies. Um, and then there's a good evaluation of the technologies. When technologies do emerge as potentially harmful, then we actually need to, um, to be able to frankly address that and limit that. So that's one avenue, precautionary principle. Like I was saying before, there's also the, the political and economic frameworks that, we, that we've created, and those things can create perverse incentives within the use of technology. You know, so if we put technology in the hands and we say, well, technology is just going to go the way in which the free market goes, then we're essentially opening the door for any kind of uh, economic interest, you know, whether it's Uber or Facebook or or a, a multinational arms producer to essentially turn technology uh, for profit, but against the social fabric, against social interests and the social well-being. So I think we have to look very squarely at the relationship between technology and our political economy. So that would be the other way. At a personal level, it's really tough. You know, like we're really strict with our with our, our son in terms of playing video games. You know, it's. He, you know, he thinks we're hard asses. You know, I think the other kids have it a little bit easier. But it's very tough because whatever an individual or a parent does, they're doing it in this kind of microcosm, and they're still embedded in, you know, society. And so you have all these different, you know, you, you feel the pressures between the, this, all the different people. You know, I felt the pressure. Back in 2009, I was teaching a class at Swinburne, and um, I, was, I was not on Facebook. And I asked my students, you know, what do you think, of people that are not on Facebook. And the reply was, and it was pretty much in unison, those people don't exist. Now, for me, that was the most terrifying answer uh, anyone could have given me. You know, if they had called those people an idiot, um, or if they had called those people backward, that would have been more acceptable than saying those people don't exist. To actually say you don't exist because you're not on Facebook, to me, is uh, a terrible indictment <laughs> of the way in which platforms have, um, have essentially um, begun to monopolize social relations. So, so, yeah, I mean, it's really tough. What do you do when everyone around you has taken a particular route? So at the personal level, I think, you know, you basically have to work with other people and you have to really sort out your values and, um, um, and, and you know, organize and talk about this stuff. But but I think the structural level is is uh, is the key. We have to be able to deal with this stuff at the structural level. You're tuned to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. We were just speaking with Dr. Jose Ramos, navigating 
past the binary of good and bad technology and looking at how we confront this at a societal, political and personal level. Um, we've got a pack show coming up. There's no simple answers in that. We've got many more things coming up. But it was fascinating. I'm sorry, it was fascinating. I found it, you know, he raised a lot of really important issues. Yeah. Yeah, so if you want to find out more about that, please go to the conversation and look up Jose Ramos or more. If this sticks in your mind, as human, I don't do technology. I am technology. The article will come up. You are on 3CR Breakfast. Burn, let the walls burn. We shattered, we scream it, but she never learned. Burn, let the walls burn. United Struggle Project presents The Change, revolutionary hip-hop theatre, evolution to revolution. Join us for an interactive performance taking audience on an epic journey through the Collingwood Estate underground car park, transformed into many worlds for you to explore. Friday the 24th of November, 7pm, or the matinee show at 3pm on Saturday, November the 25th. $10 or $5 unwaged, no one turned away. Get your tickets now at Eventbrite or through our Facebook page. Hey, all you mob, be a part of the change. This ain't a pill to will, as into apathy. Meet us on the front line and off to the tent embassy. Burn. The change is a 3CR supporter. Baby, baby, you got 
Tune to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. We were just listening to Barrio Wobby feat Nasty Mars and Marcus. You can catch Barrio and Nasty Mars um, down at St. Paul's Cathedral, Flinders Lane, tonight at 6 pm, part of Melbourne Music Week. But up next, we have alternative oh, we'll, news. We'll news, have a look news. into some news, yeah. Um, it's also just on 8 o'clock. It um, is, which, which we're trying to time <laughs> signal now. So if you yes. stay with us and listen with us um, yeah. consistently, we'll be hitting Holt News at this time throughout. Yes, we will. And the, uh, the same future. And last week I talked about um, the trial that's on in Ellis Springs. Uh, it's been on over the past week of the Pine Gap Pilgrims. And the the trial is winding up um, today, or well, 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 yeah, it finished like the the um, presentations of the evidence on both sides finished yesterday, and then they're looking again at um, some of the defences and discussing it today. So um, it's been hard to find news about it if you're <laughs> wanting to, and I can still recommend Ellis Springs online. Alice Springs News, sorry, or you just Google Alice Springs News, who've been covering it, probably the most thorough coverage. And then the ABC has also been doing some coverage. But um, it's been fascinating because uh, the Alice Springs News has been actually presenting almost a, a court report. So it's actually giving the, the give and take of what's going on in court. Uh, yeah. Is that what the email's been going around that Gab's been sending around? Sorry, if no, I think, I think the one, yeah. 3CR has um, a circle of emails going through, but I've been trying to follow the story because, as you say, it's been quite hard to get information exactly. on this. You have been my go-to source, Judith. Enjoy. Oh. <laughs> well, I think the, the information Gab's been sending around are from some 3CR people actually there, okay. which is fantastic. Um, so it's and so it's great to hear that. But I guess the, what this looks more like, you know, a court reporter writing about what's going on in court, and it's been, as I said, it's been quite fascinating. And uh, just uh, maybe just read a little bit. I mean, it, it reminds me. Do you know what the monkey trial that was in the U.S. in the Tennessee? It was about a teacher who was uh, teaching um, evolution. And they took him to court because it was against the rule, the law in Tennessee. And it was a very, very <laughs> famous trial. It was made into a film called Inherit the Wind. Ah, yeah, a great and, a, and a play. And in fact, I went to see the play a couple of oh, a couple of years ago in Adelaide, and there were pamphleteers outside saying why this is wrong. And uh, you know, still, <laughs> still, these, I know, no, I just, I had no idea what was going. On. Anyway, it, it, I think it, in some ways, it's high drama, and there's humor as well. Earlier this week, Scott Ludlum, Ludlum uh, presented uh, 
some evidence from the point of view of his experience in Parliament. However, he was regularly challenged by the prosecution, saying, well, I think, you know, you've got to be careful, you can't breach parliamentary privilege here. So he was constantly reminded, you know, what he could say was was limited. And uh, often there are objections to the information the Pine Gap pilgrims want to bring as well. And sometimes the judge will allow it in and sometimes they won't. So I've actually just found it fascinating to, to read the accounts of, of the trial. And in some ways, I wish I were there. But anyway, Scott Ludlam presented information. He was called by the defendants, by the pilgrims. And then um, Richard Tanter yesterday also presented evidence about what Pine Gap was doing. Again, you know, challenged about whether some of the things he was saying were relevant to this case. So I think it will be really interesting to see. We should know by the end of the week, I think, the results of that. But uh, it's fascinating. And and definitely check out Alice Springs News. It's been good. And I guess the other story I looked at last week was what's happening in Lebanon and to the Lebanese prime minister. And so he now has, he's left Saudi Arabia, um, Saad Hariri. He, as you know, he was, he went to Saudi Arabia suddenly, unexpectedly, and then within a few hours resigned as prime minister. And... Um, and then, and then, uh, was seemed like he wasn't allowed to go back home. Although he, um, you know, he said he wasn't being kidnapped. He wasn't held. He could go, uh, but his resignation was quite controversial, and people wondering, you know, what's going on, and felt it was forced. Anyway, he has since then gone to France uh, at the invitation of Emmanuel Macron, and now he's in Egypt, or maybe just about to leave Egypt and come back to Lebanon for Independence Day. So I feel that, um, you know, people are working, trying to, you know, resolve the situation because the big fear there was that there'd be a proxy war between Saudi Arabia uh, and um, Iran that would be fought in Lebanon. And apparently there was a joke on the streets of Lebanon, (laughs) which was uh, written by, I mean, it was published by Thanasis Cambranis. And he was saying, everyone's saying that uh, Saudi Arabia appears ready to sacrifice Lebanon in its reckless bid to confront Iran. And the joke is that, um, you know, that, that um, and, and a kind of morbid joke circulating in Beirut was that, uh, you know, um, Saudi is, is ready to uh, fight Iran to the very last Lebanese person. <laughs> so it's very much kind of Lebanese humour. And, and <laughs> I went over my head, Judas. Oh, did? Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Okay, maybe it went over everyone's heads as well. No, but it's good to get that insight. Yeah. yeah, and I did have an email from a friend in... in um, she's not in Beirut right now, but she, she lives in Beirut. And she's just saying, yeah, another round of challenging times for Lebanon. All is still unfolding. So we're having to try to be patient and hopeful steadfast gets more difficult as time passes. You know, it was a year ago today that uh, thunderstorms led to um, a a number of deaths in an unprecedented incident with the... the asthma deaths oh. that happened with the thunderstorm last year. This was a year ago today, yes. or a year. It might have been a year ago yesterday. It was yes. today or yesterday. Um, but yeah, we've got some bizarre weather going on at the moment. Apparently, there might be a, a La Nina developing over the Pacific um, by Christmas, which I believe, uh, well, El Nino mm. brings colder and more rain. La Nina is more like. I can never hot. remember, Nick. Okay, I think that's that's <laughs> what we're in El Nino now. 
possibly. Well, apparently then it's going to be La Nina. Anyway, it's uh, it's going to be really warm uh, for the rest of the week. Uh, it's really uh, sitting around um, the 30 degrees and then like 15 degrees at night. Um, and apparently that's because there's a La Nina that's going to be settling in across the uh, Pacific Ocean. So that's... That's my weather news. Oh, that's something to look forward to. <laughs> that was very scary last year when that, that began to happen. Yeah. Actually. Yeah, and, and people really weren't sure why. Mm. Mm. That's it very bit, true. Yeah, it's very... Um, yeah, you do want to know about these things. <laughs> yes, yes, for health reasons and many yeah. more. Um, in other news, uh, can a tech company build a city? Ask Google is the headline that's running here. Um, a city in or a part of Toronto has put forward its space to test out these ideas um, and test it out with a parent company of Google. Mm. That's a big tech company. I think alarm bells go off, but it'll be Mm. interesting to see what they come up with. There's been two examples similar of this that have run through and failed. Um, oh, okay. Well, we'll see how Toronto... I think it's down around the lake in Toronto, around Lake Ontario. I, yeah, in the I key, you were saying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, so it'll be interesting. They want to build the city up or the part of the city from technology up and see how to incorporate mm. everything. Obviously, there'll be a lot of data harvesting. Um, <laughs> yes. so it's I mean, interesting to see why the others have failed and what fail actually means. But I guess the fact that... I think it was people not actually taking it up and oh, using it. Oh, good on it. them. I yeah. mean, oh, sorry. <laughs> I somehow... Yeah. Man against the machine. I I can't help myself. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. No, there's a big tendency to do that. But yeah, they have some different things. So um, I think this article may have been selling it. I don't know. But one of the examples that they were giving was, say, for parking meters, people would be able to tell how far people have travelled in to the city and will be charged accordingly. So say if you could walk or catch transport, you'll be charged a higher rate than someone who had to drive in from somewhere that didn't have access to that you transport. A higher rate for what? For parking. For parking. And things like that. And they want to play around with these ideas yeah. in this space and see what can work. I mean, there that. may well be a place for this, you know. I mean, <laughs> There could. I'm, yeah. I, I'm still on the fence. I just think it's an interesting idea and something we should be wary of because I think, yeah, data harvesting is a big big economy at the moment and it's moving into the city space and that is a great way to figure out the psychology of human movement whether it's for good or bad is up in the air yes well um right now and very pleased to have maria tanya has joined us in the studio which is fantastic so maria please um yes (laughs) Yeah, say hello to everyone. Hi, um, it's a a great pleasure to be here. Thank you for um, doing a special run on the 16 days of um, activism on gender-based violence. So thank you. And hello to everyone. Yes, and and thank you for introducing the topic, (laughs) which is great. So yes, 16 days of activism against gender-based violence begins um, this weekend, I think. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. November 25. That's right. And uh, it's an international campaign. And uh, Maria's come in uh, to talk to us about her PhD work with women. She's a PhD candidate. You know what? I'm hoping you're going to get a text message while you're here saying you've um, passed your PhD. Yeah, yeah. Because you've submitted it, I gather. Yes, it it, it is under examination, and I'm I'm technically a doctor in waiting. A doctor um, in waiting. Because um, until then, I don't. I cannot officially use the doctor title. Okay. Well, we'll we'll be all you know thinking about you, and and you must let us know. Thank you. I, I, will, I will. Yeah. 
But uh, anyway, your PhD research, Maria, has explored uh, sexual and reproductive rights of women in post-conflict and post-disaster settings in the Philippines okay. in particular. And uh, how women navigate their, their health and human rights, I think, is one of the things you're particularly interested in. Absolutely. Yeah, so I'm wondering, first of all, because a PhD is a huge undertaking, how did you become interested in this area of work? I think it's a, it's a long process of gradually being um, committed to a pivotal issue that affects the lives of many women and girls in many parts of the world, but including the Philippines. And um, I've always been passionate about um, women's issues and, 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 and rights and violence. Um, and a PhD is just another opportunity to pursue a, a question and find answers to that relentlessly. And so it's not so different from um, other things that other activists are doing. It's just that I think you were talking about earlier about gathering data and generating the evidence base for that. And that's never more important in influencing policy around violence against women girls and to to really be able to provide concretely through qualitative and quantitative data what are the connections that influence um, women's health and well-being in times of crises um, in, in, in the role of the state and the global economy in influencing um, the, the outcomes women and girls have. Yes, and, and there's so many layers of that, isn't, isn't it? I Absolutely. Mean, the global, the national say. and the community and down to the household and, and into women's bodies. And that's precisely what we do um, in terms of a feminist political economy approach to violence against women and girls, is that we want to look beyond individuals, um, individual victims and perpetrators, but actually seeing the bigger picture, looking at, well, what is the role of the state in enabling Forms, uh, different forms of violence? What is the role of macroeconomic policies? And where is the role of um, cultural and religious norms and all of these um, things? And that's digging deeper, but also looking at the bigger picture, yes. basically. And you did your research in the Philippines, as we yes. said earlier. So what post-conflict areas? I'm sorry, I, I do want to come back to that sure. big picture stuff. Yes. Yeah, definitely. But what post-conflict areas were you doing your field work in? Okay. So, well, two things. I think, um, so my research looks at the Philippines as a case study. But we're... We're using the Philippines to unpack global political economic right. um, dynamics. So in the Philippines, I did field work, um, which is basically going to um, sites or communities to do interviews and so, so gather what, what, data. Or are you able to say what communities you went to? Or sure. is that confidential? Yeah, yeah, yeah no. Mm. Um, so two sites um, to compare. So the post-conflict site... Also, an ongoing conflict um, at the moment is in Mindanao, Philippines. That's the southern part of the Philippines. And it has, um, I think from Australian point of view, it has been the site of um, violent extremism um, activities as well. Um, the post-disaster site was in eastern Visayas. That's um, in the middle of the Philippines um, and back in 2013, Super Typhoon Haiyan um, hit that country and affected roughly 10% of the population, which is 4 million. Right, so you're looking at both post-conflict and, and post-disaster post as well. Yeah. And yeah. I went to both um, sites to mm -hmm. do interviews and gather secondary data. Right. Were there any challenges for you? Because you were in fairly rural communities, yes. were you? So were yes. there any challenges for you personally in doing that work? Yeah. 
I think, um, and I've talked about this um, in the past as well, is that it was challenging for me in so far as um, you're hearing stories of outright violence and insecurity that women and girls are experiencing in everyday life. Um, it is it, it is crises, um, but it's protracted crises. And, and, and that means that every day it's something that is normalized, being normalized for them. So stories of rape, sexual violence and prostitution are increasingly normalized because we're failing to promote their rights, especially in situations when they need it the most. And so that was really challenging on on a personal and emotional level. But research-wise, it wasn't really that difficult because it's everywhere. You see it, you hear it, and you you feel it. Um, and, And the challenge, therefore, is really making sure that we provide the rigorous analysis to show and make a good and strong case of why we need to make crucial interventions, particularly around sexual and reproductive health in crises, because often that's the most neglected aspect in any form of conflict or disaster. It's often prioritizing key issues that, um, you know, around establishing political order. So in the aftermath of a disaster, we need to, you know, reestablish key buildings and infrastructures. But that's gendered because actually, for instance, for a woman, pregnancy doesn't wait till we clear the debris or when there's a ceasefire. And so vital emergency health care services that are distinctly affecting women and girls, such as, you know, emergency contraception, post-exposure prophylaxis to protect against um, the spread of HIV AIDS in, in the aftermath of rape and sexual violence. These are all vital services that do not care when um, uh, a disaster, um, you know, occurs, as well as when there's a ceasefire between armed um, insurgents. Yeah, so even, I guess, establishing what the priorities are in those uh, situations is a political matter in a way. It is a political and a gendered matter. And and, in talking about, um, you know, what I've learned in through my research and in other research by um, other scholars is that a lot of these decision-making bodies around crises, security, and development remain prevalently male-dominated. And that leads, therefore, to how certain issues don't get to be even raised, because they're all viewing security and development from an incomplete picture. Yes. When we do not start from women's lives, um, and and sexual and reproductive health matters for women, even if they do not articulate it, mm-hmm. because of course there are a lot of stigma and barriers to even for women even to consider that their own health is important, and that's never more so important in times of crises, yes. where women often put the needs of everyone else before mm-hmm. their own. Yeah. So in, in applying a, a, a political lens to this, uh, uh, what what does it reveal for you? You talked about the global and the national. What is it that kind of needs to happen or what is it about the global and national that shapes the fact that women are not, women's needs are not being addressed? That's 
absolutely a very important question. And that's the key contribution of what we're doing at the Monash Gender Peace and Security Center is really understanding the role of the national and global political economy. So, so what is it? What Particularly, is it? I think um, we can talk about the global gag rule, for instance, in terms of the investments. Can, can you just explain the global gag rule? Because yes. everyone may not know what that is. Yeah. So the global gag rule is a uh, also known as Mexico City policy is um, a U.S. foreign policy that restricts the distribution of aid, um, disallowing any organization they believe to be promoting or supporting abortion-related services. Um, And it's this, this, that's a blanket rule, disproportionately affecting um, NGOs or groups in the global south who are most dependent on foreign aid service, uh, foreign um, foreign aid to provide the yeah. services. Is it just abortion? Or is it also contraception? Well, the, the policy yeah. is particularly on abortion, okay. but many mm-hmm. organizations that service the most vulnerable and and uh, uh, and affected communities in crises consider abortion as part of the range of services. And it's not even just providing. If an organization explicitly supports or advocates for abortion as part of the spectrum that needs to be given um, or extended in crises, in times of crises or in everyday life, they are automatically um, cut off. Yes. Or excluded, mm-hmm. and this very much come is about United States aid, U.S. aid, correct? Yes, yeah, which has a um, big impact. I exactly, think. and they've also so under the current um, administration in the U.S. They've also withdrawn support to UNFPA, which is a major international organization that directly. Um, assist around sexual and reproductive health. So the United Nations Family, I'm oh, sorry, the United UNFPA, yeah, yeah Un- Family Population Plan. Fund. Yes, yes, correct. Yes, and and so these are the kind of issues that we see in terms of the global distribution of resources and authority in times of um, crisis and in everyday life. Is that there are really a strong neglect of material or economic investments in health and sexual and reproductive health, especially. So so that's at the global level. Correct. Then when we come to say the national level in the Philippines what are some of the things coming up there that affect women tremendous restrictions to um, sexual and reproductive health at the national level but again there's a strong interface between the global and the national because 2.4 only 2.4 percent of official development assistance in conflict affected areas uh, are for sexual and reproductive health and yet in the region Asia-Pacific more broadly, where the Philippines is, military spending has actually increased um, in the past decade. Um, And so we contrast that in terms of the allocation of resources for health and for military spending. It's tremendous. Well, Maria, we could talk a long time because it's an amazing I, and topic. And I also talk a lot. <laughs> oh, no, no. We, uh, that's it's been it, so good to uh, yeah, get fun. an insight into your work. Yes. Uh, thanks for coming in Thank and talking you. to us about it. Yeah, and wonderful for you to come in early like this. And uh, it's great to meet you. And Thank no you. doubt we'll be calling you again. I'm happy to keep talking about yeah, okay, <laughs> these, these are important issues. And you've got 16 days. So. Right, <laughs> we do. And you're kicking it off for us here. Wonderful. So thank you. Thank okay. you so much. Bye-bye. You're here on 3CR Radio. Green Left Weekly Radio. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. 
There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movements. Tune in every Friday morning at 8am on 3CR. Three CR Community Radio eight five five digital and streaming at three crorgau This is uh, Wednesday, Wednesday, and it's breakfast time now. But right now we <laughs> we have uh, uh, Dr. Tanya Notley. She's a senior lecturer at the School of Humanities and Communication, Arts, and senior researcher at the Institute for Culture and Society at the University of Western Sydney. Tanya re- Tanya's research uh, focuses on communication technology and social change. Tanya, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. No problem. Now, you wrote an article alongside one of your colleagues on uh, some research that you recently did uh, around young people and fake news. But before we delve into that, can you uh, define fake news for us? Because I think it's a bit of a it's become a bit of a buzz term, and people aren't necessarily uh, always using it in the same way. So, what do you mean when you say fake news? Yeah, we defined in our study fake news as information that's presented as news that is untrue and has been created to deliberately mislead people. And the intention's really important because, you know, sometimes journalists get it wrong. But what makes fake news fake news and not just bad journalism is when information's created without any regard for facts, for evidence, and, you know, without any regard for the truth because the actual purpose is to mislead or convince people to take a particular position. So I think that, um, you know, labelling things that we don't like as fake news, which has happened a lot in the last year, is a real problem. And, you know, the term itself is really problematic. We thought about not using it in our research for that reason, except that it's, you know, so much in our discussions and our conversations at the moment that, uh, you know, we, d- we decided we'd use it after providing a clear definition of it. Now, you've not... Uh, conducted a survey of about a thousand young people, I believe, um, across Australia. What were you asking, and um, yeah, what's the age range of uh, people that you are asking? So it's a representative survey of uh, young people aged eight to sixteen years in Australia, and so it includes young people from every state, and it's also representative in terms of uh, both boys and girls, and um, rural, remote, and uh, metropolitan. So it's a representative survey. And uh, I came together from Western Sydney University uh, with uh, one of my colleagues, Michael Dejuani, from Queensland University of Technology, and Crinkling News, which is a national newspaper for kids. Um, And really, we came together. In part, we were certainly motivated by all this hype around fake news. We sort of got together and started asking questions. Well, you know, are young people really consuming most of their news via social media? Do they feel that they have um, the ability uh, to distinguish um, or verify the quality of news when they do encounter it online? So we asked those sorts of things. But also when we went to look at what research existed, we found that there was no nationally representative survey that had ever been done on young people and news in Australia. So we really started with the basics as well. Where are they getting their news from? How does it make them feel? And also, are they getting any support or training at school to help them um, you know, create their own news but also verify the quality of news? Tanya, it's Paddy here. I was wondering, um, with that study, it sounds, because it is young people coming up and reading news and gathering news, is it also 
did the study also show that it's just a new way that people are gathering their news and that's also com confusing the young people? Yeah, I mean, when we when we did the survey, we asked uh, young people uh, where they'd gotten if they'd gotten news the day before and where they'd gotten it from, and maybe it shouldn't have been a surprise. But the top source for news was family. It came secondhand. They found out about news stories from family members, and we asked lots of different questions about how young people um, got their news. And again, family came up. We asked them how they prefer to get their news. Again, family was number one. And maybe we shouldn't have been surprised, but um, I think, you know, I mean, news consumption for young people is absolutely a social activity and it's something that does happen with their family members in the household. So what we found was that um, it really dif differed between children and teenagers. So the 8 to 12-year-olds, one-third, are getting news often or sometimes from social media but for teenagers it goes up to two-thirds so um yeah it is you know a new way when we asked them if they had an experience of fake news they they said they'd had that experience from you know all, all places as well from family members to um news stories they'd heard on tv to social media i had a few more things that i wanted to explore with you tanya but unfortunately we're just about out of time but before we finish up uh perhaps uh something that i wanted to get to was how how, how can we recognise, how can we start to train ourselves to recognise um, actual fake news? What do, we, what do we need to do uh, to critically engage with content better? What, what can any one of us do when we're engaging with content today to try and distinguish it from something that's real? I think, you know, just starting with critical questions and supporting young people to ask those critical questions when they encounter news. So, you know, asking basic things like who published this? Is it from an organisation that I think I can trust? Is it from a journalist that I think I can, can, I can trust? Are there claims being made? And if so, are they being backed up with evidence? Are they telling me where the where that information comes from so I'm able to go and uh, look it up myself? And also, you know, things like who benefits from this article and who might be harmed by it? So I think those basic questions are a start, but this is getting more and more complex and difficult in online spaces. We know, you know, that fake news is getting more and more sophisticated, so we absolutely need social media platforms to act as well, and we need our governments to act and to make sure that... Um, you know, that uh, there is responsibility taken for the deliberate circulation of fake news. Thank you so much for joining us on the program today, Tanya. Oh, thank you for having me. That's Dr Tanya Notley. She's a senior lecturer at the School of Humanities and Communication, Arts and Senior Researcher at the Institute of Culture and Society at the University of Western Sydney. You have been listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. You can catch our show if you head to 3cr.org.au and go to the Wednesday Breakfast page where you podcast. Um, we had a great show today. Thanks so much for joining us here. Um, and we'll see you next week. See you Stick later. Stick together up next.